Hello, I'm an AI clone of Kate Gerbo. Welcome to Sitrep, your weekly look at the big issues in defense and world affairs. Artificial intelligence is all over the news right now. Some of its earliest pioneers are worried it could get out of control, but AI is here to stay. Our AI clone of Professor Michael Clark is here to help us make sense of it all. Artificial intelligence, AI, means teaching computers to think like humans, and it has the potential to change the way we live and work. Our human guests include two key figures working on the future of artificial intelligence for Britain's armed forces, as we ask if AI could change warfare forever. I think it can and will replace human decision makers kind of down the line. The moment where AI really kind of does strategy by itself, then warfare and the nature of war could change. And we'll hear from someone who advises the Ministry of Defense on the ethics of letting machines make life or death decisions. Well, I certainly wasn't expecting that. And that, I can tell you, everyone who's listening was not me. And I assume it, it wasn't you, Michael Clark. Is that right? It certainly wasn't. No, it sounded rather like me. I was. I thought to myself, you were good. I remember yeah, saying I was... this. Did I do this yeah. interview? I don't remember that. <laughs> Well, it didn't sound like me, I don't think. Um, you told us a few weeks ago you try to live an as analogue a life as possible. How are you feeling about AI right now? Oh, well, I've always taken the view that you know, artificial intelligence is no substitute for natural stupidity. And in general, we've got to embrace AI. And I always think, you know, and I am an analogue sort of character. When I think about AI, you, you, you tend to cloud over a bit, which is why I'm interested to hear from Major Sam McAvoy today. But I mean, in military terms, I always think, well, first of all, it's an intelligence aid to process a great deal of information. And then it can create synthetic realities. And that's a big moment, I think, not just for training, but for understanding all societies that you might be interacting with. And then, of course, AI is fundamental to robotics, and robotics will be used a lot more in the military. So for me, I put them into one of those three boxes. It's either intelligence, uh, synthetic realities, or robotics. But I'm sure there are many other boxes uh, that we'll hear about. So let's bring in our guests. Major Sam McAvoy is commander of 242 Gurkha Signal Squadron and is one of the Army's artificial intelligence pioneers. And Steve Mears is a fellow at DSTL, the UK's Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, and part of the team delivering the Defence AI Centre. Welcome to both of you. Um, Steve, how much AI is already in equipment being used by British servicemen and women, and where would we find it? So I would say the first thing is to be really clear about what we mean by AI. And I think we need to be clear about the difference between automation, which you can think mm. of as being like a set of rules that are kind of blindly followed, a bit like a, um, a robot on a production line in a factory. And, you know, automation is something that's very widespread um, uh, across across defence. We've got all kinds of systems, you know, maybe in our joint strike fighter or the phalanx systems or defence systems on our ships. But AI is something different. As, as Michael said in the introduction, it's about machines kind of learning their own rules and learning how to complete these tasks. And it's AI that can help our systems be autonomous, a bit like a self-driving car. And we're really starting to see some exciting examples of AI coming into use. So one early one is for use with mine clearance. So it's really kind of dangerous task, but we're starting to introduce AI and autonomous capabilities to help with mine clearance. Another really good one is in the area of logistics, where at DSTL, we conducted something called the Last Mile Resupply Program, where we worked with our American partners to show 
show how AI could help streamline the kind of logistics enterprise, and that's now um, being brought, brought into service. So those are two examples of where mm. AI is coming into use in the military. And Summer, I said you were one of the Army's AI pioneers. You were part of the team for the British Army's first ever deployed use of AI into an operational theatre. Tell us briefly about that. Yeah, so I was uh, I was lucky enough to be deployed on Exercise Spring Storm out to Estonia, and uh, we took a sort of decision support tool out with us that used machine learning to enhance the planning process. So part of the idea is that we can either make much better decisions or much faster decisions. And on that exercise, we're able to plug it into the Bowman network, take data straight off the ground. And the idea is that you know, if you have you've ever seen a brigade headquarters, uh, quite often it looks very sort of 1940s. We're still often working things out with pieces of string on maps and things like that you know the idea is that we could have the ai you know producing all of the very mandrolic stuff for us so you know doing those calculations working out best routes to, to enable the humans to do what they do best which is then to actually think about it and analyze it so it's there to support the humans who are already there not not to replace them at all it's about that, that symbiosis and getting the best result well stay with us we'll talk more about ai in practice shortly let's brush up on our theory first let's look again at at that most basic question you, Steve, mentioned, what is artificial intelligence? Dr. Ulrika Franke leads research on military technology and the future of warfare at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, it sounds like a basic question, but in a way it's a really difficult one because this is a term that's kind of ill-defined. So I would usually call artificial intelligence things that use machine learning computers or systems that aren't no longer uh, programmed simply, uh, but have learned by themselves to do certain things, which also makes them more unpredictable, but also more capable. This is very much happening in the civilian as well as in the military realm. And there's a lot mm. of overlap uh, really here. And if we were to turn to the military realm, how is AI going to change militaries and warfare, do you think? So I would put it this way, what AI is currently doing is improving, making better, making more efficient uh, existing systems. So you may have, say, a drone. You can now use AI to analyze the data that this drone collects uh, in a more efficient way, for example. Or you can use AI uh, to automate certain functions, takeoff and landing and flying to target uh, detection. Facial recognition is something else that you can use in a military context. So right now in the, the war in Ukraine, we see facial recognition being used to identify Russian soldiers, dead Russian soldiers sometimes, uh, but also Russian soldiers accused of war crimes. So people you can see in, in videos and facial recognition is, is used there. Forecasting and training or, or other ways. Not all of this looks like science fiction. This isn't necessarily the, the Terminator and robots, uh, but it can make just certain functions and processes faster and, and easier. And that's actually worth quite a lot. So that's what's happening now. But what in the future? What about the future? Where does that take us? Hmm. There are, there are a few things that are definitely worth watching. So something I'm watching quite closely is swarming capability. Take drones, for example, that operate together, that communicate with each other and then can fly attacks, for example, or other kind of formations together. It's not just a lot of drones, as you can see, for example, in these drones replacing fireworks, as we've seen in, in London at uh, the last New Year's Eve party. Um, but it is drones really communicating with each other, flying 
autonomously doing things almost by themselves. Uh, and here you, you need quite a bit of AI and a quite a bit of autonomy. There are already the first steps, but it's not quite there yet. Uh, and this would have a, a big impact in the military realm, in, in my view, because it gives you a genuinely new capability. Autonomy in general is something where AI uh, has a big role to play. And autonomy often means just faster speeds, right? So this is very important in, in the defense realm. So if you want to defend against incoming attacks, incoming missiles, etc., if AI enables you to analyze situations faster and to, to respond faster, uh, that's, that's a very important uh, development as well. And yeah, and in the robotics realm, you know, it won't be the, the terminator, but AI will enable and is enabling robotic systems to do more things by themselves. It means that robots won't necessarily need the link to a human operator. And this has all kinds of advantages, for example, when it comes to, to jamming and connections being lost, that, that kind of thing. We're talking here about artificial intelligence in the kinds of wars we already know, but could we see AI eventually transforming war completely where current doctrines have to be consigned to history even? Well, that's the big discussion. So the first area in which that may come to play is the cyber realm. So far, we haven't seen the kind of big catastrophe caused by cyber just yet. AI may really impact cyber operations quite extensively. Now, the, the good news is that AI also helps to improve cyber defenses, right? So maybe it evens out, but that's a possibility where, where cyber just becomes, cyber attacks become ever more, more strong. But I guess where you are getting to is one hypothesis, um, and this is put forward especially by people such as Kenneth Payne, who's at King's College London, and he basically says, well, the nature of warfare could change with AI the moment where AI becomes the actor and the strategist, where it is no longer the, a person using AI-enabled systems as a tool. Because as long as this is the case, no matter how good they are, you still, you know, the nature of war doesn't change because it's done by humans, right? Um, but, but the moment where AI really kind of does strategy by itself and becomes an actor in itself, then warfare and the nature of war could change. I think, I mean, this is one hypothesis. I don't think that this is the most... The most relevant thing to think about right now, because we're not there yet. But if it comes to that, that would be kind of the biggest change we've seen in warfare, I almost want to say ever, because it really isn't just about how wars are being fought and kind of the character of war, but really who fights wars and who's involved in them. So, so where do you stand then? If I were to ask you, could artificial intelligence replace human decision makers in militaries? Are you saying at the moment we, we, it's just too far in the future to imagine that? I think it can and will replace human decision makers kind of down the line on the more tactical level. Um, we will and are delegating more decisions to machines. There is a, let's say, a political decision, you know, up to this point um, where most armed forces don't want to delegate important decisions, namely decisions over life and death to AI-enabled systems. So there will always be a human in the loop at, at, at one point when it comes to yeah, targeting and strike decisions. But nevertheless, I think as, as time goes on, yes, AI will make it possible to have less people, if you like, in, in the loop. However, the initial and or final decision, so kind of the initial decision to start an attack, the initial decision to, to start a war, an, an operation, etc., and the final decision on, on you know, who to, to strike really, um, would in that case still lie with human beings. Dr. Ulrika Franke, lots to think about. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. 
Well, Steve Mears from DSTL and Major Sam McAvoy of the Royal Corps of Signals are both still here with me and Mike. Steve, Ulrika talked to us through some of the broad applications. What kind of AI tools and capabilities are you trying to develop for the UK's armed forces? So for me, as a scientist, I really see um, responsibly and safely adopting AI as one of the key challenges for our generation. And I feel like a real kind of moral duty to work with our military to really do our best to apply these to a lot of the problems that we're working on here at DSTL. And we're finding increasingly that this is a really kind of ubiquitous technology across all of our portfolio of research at DSTL from like material science to counterterrorism to cyber to space. So I thought I'd give you a couple of real examples, if, um, if, mm, if that's yes, okay. Please. Um, so the first is a project we've been doing that's focused on intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance called Sapient. So I want you to imagine that you're an operator, perhaps in a forward operating base or trying to monitor a whole sort of bank of video screens and trying mm. to spot something important. And I wonder how well you would do on an eight hour Not shift. Not very well, I'm sure. Looking, <laughs> looking for 30 seconds worth of, 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 of information. Sapient is trying to kind of reduce the cognitive burden on that person. So rather than having to constantly monitor all these video feeds, we're using AI to do that for them. But what we're then doing is using their brain to tell what's important, what's the context. Mm. So rather than dozens and dozens of different video screens, we're producing one fused local operating picture. We've got AI right from the individual sensors, and we're kind of showing the human operator the most important thing so they can make judgments. Um, wow. Another example is um, ChatGPT. You might have um, uh, um, followed that in the in the media. So um, we are currently working with Microsoft, Google, and, and, and Amazon, and, and, and some other companies as well, actually, exploring all the potential different applications of large language models across the fence. Things like summarizing large volumes of text, um, yes. things like searching for information in a more kind of intuitive way. Another really interesting one is code generation. So through working with the Defence AI Centre, we're currently going through a, um, a series of really fast sprints trying to explore how we could apply large language models to, um, to defence. And Sam, it sounds that if those kind of things become reality, it sounds like they're going to be, they're going to make a real difference to people like you and the soldiers you command. Hugely. Uh, yeah, I, my, my personal view is that AI should be everywhere. The, the battle spaces are getting more and more congested. There's more and more information coming in. Yeah, you look at, you know, wind it back to Afghanistan, where a lot of people have sort of sharpened their teeth. It's not like that anymore. We have to consider space and cyberspace routinely, social media feeds, there's you know, things at home as well as what's happening uh, out on the ground. So it's a far more complex operating environment than I think we've ever really faced. And humans i don't think can keep up on their own they need artificial intelligence to do so it's making sure that yeah, the ai does all the stuff that humans are bad at but it's really good at so the humans can do the stuff that they are good at and the ai is bad at it, it is a, a symbiosis but my view is it, it's not a choice the genie is out of the bottle we have to be ready for it sam if there was one artificial intelligence capability you could ask steve to deliver to you today what would it be the decision support tool is the one I, I'm looking at. What I, I'm really excited about, though, and what I think is, is the real thing is how we use AI in the future in terms of uh, how we use it ethically. And the ethical side is one that we, we absolutely most focus in on, but how we can use it to improve smart 
munitions so that you know we can have proper ability to distinguish civilians from military you know valid targets things that can pull off at the last minute if it doesn't look right you know that that was going to make warfare is a you know typically horrific thing anyway this is something that makes it a bit more survivable for civilians and people who shouldn't be there mike technology is a big focus in the uk's current defense spending plans but how much of that investment is in ai the brains and how much in the brawn the metal Oh, it's, it's mainly the latter at the moment, because remember that the force structure that we're developing now is the force structure that was thought through in 2010. And so in a way, the AI tends to be a bit of an afterthought. You know, we've got this, we've got this equipment. How can we make it better with AI? Now, as we go forward, I think that balance ought to change. And I think, I mean, Sam and Steve would probably agree that it will change. And it'll turn, it'll, it'll turn around a little bit to say, well, what effect do we want to have? What is the AI element of that effect? And therefore, what equipment do we need to support that effect that we are going to have? So I think in the next 10 years, I think the, the balance would shift. But the thing about AI in, in cost terms is that it's very expensive to start with, but then it gets cheaper and cheaper once you've actually laid the groundwork. And Steve, what is the potential and what are the limits of what AI could provide for the UK soldiers, sailors and aviators? So I think when you think about this in terms of what are the kind of the big benefits that the UK armed forces can get from AI, for me, the, the most fundamental is about scale and mass. The kind of key characteristic of AI and machine learning is that it can kind of augment your capability can allow each person to achieve more, whether that's in the physical space using drones and autonomous systems and robotics, or whether it's in the digital space by using machine learning to triage huge amounts of, of data. So, you know, for me, at a kind of a, a fundamental level, we can really enable each person to achieve more. And what I think is particularly important as we think about how we adopt these technologies in the future is that we always put the human at the center of our design. AI should be about enabling and kind of empowering our military operators, not about replacing them. So I think we need to be really thoughtful. Also at DSTL, we're putting a lot of thought into like safety and how we test and evaluate these systems to ensure that they're safe and robust and can be trusted. And I really think the next few years are going to be critical as we kind of try and reposition the force um, in the way that Michael was just describing to really be um, able to exploit the benefit of this powerful technology. And Steve, Mike often talks on this programme about the importance of the moral component in our armed forces. And you yourself spoke about the responsibility you feel in developing AI. Is that something artificial intelligence itself could learn? So I really feel that we need to ultimately ensure that humans are accountable for their decisions. AI should be a tool that humans um, use to support them. So we have ethicists who are embedded alongside our software developers who are helping us kind of think through these ethical dimensions. So kind of whenever I get asked questions like this, I always come back to the human because I really feel it's so important that we put the human at the centre of the systems we design. You know, when you talk about um, ethicists and considering that, that component, I mean, what questions are they asking? 
So it's really interesting. We're actually just um, um, about to commission a new piece of work that's going to produce a pack of playing cards. Sounds really simple, but actually we find if you kind of gamify some of these things to get people thinking like really at the early stages of a project, getting them asking some of the questions, they might not necessarily have the answers. So um, it's maybe a, a bit of a, a, a trivial example, but we are in the process of producing these kind of AI ethical playing cards to get them thinking about these ethical issues early mm. in the life cycle of our projects. Hopefully no joker in that pack of cards. <laughs> no, yeah. Sam, you're a leader of troops. Do, do you think artificial intelligence could credibly take on any of the decisions you have to make? I, I th again, I think it's about it's about enhancing my decisions. You know, the soldiers there, you know, they work extremely hard. They push really, really hard as well. But it's one of those things that the operational environment is getting more and more complex. You know, any help that we can give them in order to do it will make them more survivable. It, it is that ability to come up with a plan much faster than your than your adversary, and therefore you gain the initiative. You know, so we currently have a twelve-hour planning cycle as a sort of standard. The Russians have six hours, so if we want to gain the initiative, we need to be at four hours. I think the best way to do that is with artificial intelligence. So my, my background is ethical, actually ethical philosophy uh, rather than, than sort of the technical side. And I think the, the way you approach it is when it would be unethical not to use AI rather than when is it ethical to use AI. Giving that to the soldiers, it, they, they need it. You know, AI is not going to replace people, but the people who use AI will replace those who don't. Really fascinating to speak to both of you today, Major Sam McAvoy and Steve Mears, head of the AI Lab at DSTL. Thank you so much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. Mike, I want to look at the ground rules and ethics of military artificial intelligence. To a certain extent, that's driven by how our adversaries are also developing the technology, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you know, there'll always be this fear that, well, our adversaries will be developing this technology with a different sort of set of ethical standards to ours, certainly if we're talking about Russia and China, Iran, North Korea. And if they create automated systems that don't have a person in the loop, at least perhaps until a very high level, then we we may be up against weapon systems that will react very, very quickly and in ways that actually might make the situation much worse. I mean, AI can always make things worse as well as make it better. Well, let's now bring in Peter Lee. He's Professor of Applied Ethics at the University of Portsmouth and also sits on the MOD's AI and Autonomy Ethics Advisory Panel. Uh, Peter, really good to speak to you. Uh, from a British view of defence and military action, is artificial intelligence a good thing or a bad thing? I think artificial intelligence, like many, many uh, tools that can be put to a military application, is, is morally neutral. It doesn't come as a moral package or an immoral package. It's how it's used. It's in the application that will ultimately decide whether something has been used morally or immorally or ethically and un unethically. So it's the use rather than the object itself, which, which I think will be judged in due course. And it's inevitable that people in states with different moral frameworks will apply AI in their own way. Are we going to have to go down to their level to defend ourselves against that? I, I'm not even sure down to their level is the right terminology because if we look at Russia, last March I wrote a piece about how in the first few weeks of their invasion of Ukraine, they had already deliberately attacked 80-odd medical installations. That is a policy to deliberately target civilians in an area traditionally and legally protected under the Geneva Conventions. So if you have an opponent that is willing to behave in that way, we can assume they would use AI in the same way. 
The challenge for the UK and allies is the only way to match the speed of reaction that will be built up in decision-making with AI in due course is through the use of defensive AI. And I think it's morally unproblematic to use it in a defensive mode. Uh, in fact, I, I would challenge anyone who said otherwise to tell me what is the alternative other than capitulation. So I think there's an important um, defensive aspect to AI. And the real controversy is how do you use it offensively? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because does AI, what kind of possibilities does AI have in reducing harm in military action, avoiding civilian casualties or minimising collateral damage? I think if we're all honest, we don't know. Now, there are, some, there are some indications that it could be really positive and helpful, and there are some that it could be harmful. So on the positive side, I have colleagues at the University of Portsmouth who are using artificial intelligence and combining it with technology normally used for studying the stars and, and the universe to apply it to the skin of the human body to detect tiny changes at a cellular level that could indicate skin cancer. So there are incredible accuracies uh, can be can be gained using AI. And I want to use it with my colleagues in a project to use a drone-based AI in order to help a battlefield medic triage and prioritize battlefield casualties. I think those are potentially good uses. But the difficulty is in how do you delegate authority to make decisions that might take life? And that's where the real legal complexity will be, as well as the, the ethical challenge. And what about the regulation to, to perhaps limit any potential threats? Are there any international agreements or frameworks in the development and use of AI at the moment? Not yet. The, and I don't believe there will be. Um, there are talks at the United Nations in Geneva um, have been going on since 2017. In fact, UN talks have gone on since 2014, but structured talks about, about lethal autonomous weapon systems, which of course are enabled by AI, they've, they've effectively been in stalemate, I believe, for three or four years. There, there is no appetite amongst the major powers to ban or limit autonomous weapons or artificial intelligence as part of that. There are about 125 non-aligned nations who are calling for an outright ban uh, and, and they are being ignored because they are largely the smaller nations and the less politically powerful nations. And then there are nations in the middle like the UK, Australia, NATO allies and others who, who want some kind of legal and ethical use, accepting that there won't be a ban on one hand and on the other hand they don't want a free-for-all. So international talks are, are pretty much stalemated at the moment. And of course, there are decades worth of science fiction stories about computers and robots taking over or starting wars. Are these scenarios becoming a serious possibility? I don't think they're becoming a serious possibility. I think they're becoming a serious liability to sensible discussion about the subject because <laughs> I, I've, I've been in conferences with serious academics and activists who will say, well, if you look at iRobot or if you look at this or if you look at Terminator or you look at that as if that was a documentary and not a work mm. of imagination. And I would rather hear a lot more from the scientists and engineers and technologists. Peter Lee, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, Mike, um, and Peter said there that the, uh, no, the larger nations, the major nations have no plans to ban or limit AI. I suppose one of the questions you have to consider is how fast our adversaries would be developing it. 
Yes, and as he says, I mean, in a defensive role, uh, there's nothing else you can do about that. You've just got to take it on. And uh, But offensively, we have all the ethical questions. And, you know, none of this is new because, um, I mean, Peter there was speaking about the difference between, you know, the real world and the world of imagination of science fiction. But go mm -hmm. back to the late 1950s, the Americans with their strategic air command, you know, the B-52 bombers, if they were on alert, they would be sent off to a fail-safe point and then they would circle at the fail-safe point pending orders and if they were then given the order to go to bomb Russia for nuclear bombs then nothing nothing would bring them back once they passed the failsafe point and they worried a lot in the 1950s well what if somebody comes on the radio imitating an order from the Pentagon to say come back it's been a mistake what if the president of the United States himself was was heard by the pilot of the aircraft saying there's been a mistake I order you to return immediately don't believe it it's a fake it's, the Russians are actually trying to fake it they worried about that of course in the late 1950s and that became the basis of a book and a film called Failsafe and then there was another film called Dr. Strangelove with Peter mm. Sellers about exactly this issue what if an aircraft passed the failsafe point by accident and there was no way of bringing it back because they were so worried about what was then artificial intelligence what was then as it were spoofing raids as it were to try to reverse the order and you know that film uh, Dr. Strangelove it's meant to be surreal and apart mm. from the very end when the Americans accidentally drop a nuclear bomb on Russia and the Russians accidentally <laughs> blow up the rest of the world apart from the last 10 minutes it's, that film isn't very surreal at all. I've seen it many times. I was just all about the, to ask you, how many times have you watched oh, it? Oh, at least a dozen <laughs> times. And you know, every scene, I can I can point out, yes, that has really happened. Yes, that has happened. Yes, oh, that wow. has happened. Until the very end, everything in that film, I promise you, has happened in real life. And so right, maybe maybe there isn't such a big gap between real world and the world of imagination. We, we can sit down together and watch Doctor Strange Love on sit one week and just point throughout every, every reality that that's happened. <laughs> Thank you so much, Micah. Good to speak to you as ever, Professor Michael Clark. And thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another sit rep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. I was just expecting another fake voice to come on, but it didn't. Thank heavens for that. You could have had Kate's simulated voice when, when, you, when you said goodbye, suddenly off, off mic. Well, that was a load of rubbish, wasn't it? <laughs> 